whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the always perfect sit. I gotta be honest, reality hit this week. I'm Ben Kolb, coming to you from the depths of my dingy, overcrowded basement, where above me, one of my kids has a 101.9 degree fever, the other one has a double ear infection and pink eye, and we're wrapping our baby in bubble wrap, trying to keep her safe, because the only place in the country that's more contaminated than my house right now is a romaine lettuce processing center. (laughs) But sickness aside, I consider myself the luckiest person in the world because I get to be doing this show with you. And Across Cyberspace is the only co-host who knew the ending to The Sixth Sense the entire time. I see that. She's Becky Peters. Becky, what's good? It's all good, Ben. Unlike you, I'm not coming to you from the basement. I'm coming to you from the garage inside my car because it's the only place that's quiet from inside my house right now. But yeah, everything's good. This podcast journey has felt like a nonstop party, and I feel so lucky to get to bring the advice of giants to the earbuds of my favorite people, busy teachers. And boy, oh boy, do we have a giant for everybody today. Yeah, absolutely, Becky. Now, listener, if I could let you go on a walk with any historical figure, who would it be? Towards the top of my list would definitely be the iconic legend Steve Jobs, who founded what a lot of people claim is the most influential company in the history of mankind. Steve Jobs, obviously the founder of Apple Computer. And my favorite picture of our guest today is a picture of him on a walk with Steve Jobs uh, in all of their 80s glory with tight jeans and their hands in their pocket and crazy, crazy 80s hair flowing in the wind. So we are so, so lucky to have on the show the 54th employee of Apple Computers, the former vice president of Apple Education, John Couch. Yeah, and Ben, when our listeners do take a walk with this, and listen to this episode, it's kind of like they're walking with Steve Jobs then, is that right? Yes, like from a purely scientific standpoint, yes, they are. Yeah, I think I think that's true. So I, I, I did go to med school for a while. I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but I do know that I learned so much in our conversation with Mr. Couch. He's actually the recent author of a book called Rewiring Education, How Technology Can Unlock Every Student's Potential. And in this episode, we talk about the purpose of education today, how challenge-based learning leads to increased student motivation, and what it means to rewire education. And And stay tuned after the interview for some more examples and tangible tips for your classroom. This episode starts off asking John Couch what he learned about education from a spinning top in his physics classroom. And without further ado, here he is. It was uh, my junior year in in college at the University of California, Riverside, and uh, I was a physics major. And uh, when I walked in uh, the class for the final exam, to my surprise, there was only one question. That was daunting enough. But yeah. the question, you know, your whole grades based on that question, the answer to that question. And uh, what I realized was that, one, the, the question had never been answered in the lecture, and it wasn't covered in the book, nor did the TA uh, ever broach the subject. And so it was it was something that we hadn't memorized. And I think that was the, the key challenge for me was, wow. I don't know the formula for this. And I hadn't really been trained to, you know, step back, think outside the box, maybe visualize what direction you were going to spin the top, how much force you were going to spin the top. And rather than be able to derive the question, I think I just saw a whole class panic. You know, the funny part of it was some guy got up in the class about maybe half hour in and and was walked up towards the proctor with his blue book and textbook. 
and you thought, oh my gosh, he's finished already. You know, boy, am I in trouble. But instead, he he walked up and he dropped his blue book and 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 tech book right into the garbage can. <gasps> That's a mic drop. And oh I my think, gosh! And I think everybody cheered. You know, so. It was it was a moment where I realized that the formula that I used to be successful in high school and through the first, you know, rudimentary classes in college of memorizing things wasn't going to work anymore. And I didn't have, and I didn't have a backup. I didn't have a backup. Fortunately, I had a friend who encouraged me to take a class called Horocultural Science 120, which turned out to be Fortran programming. And, and that was in the same, same year. And what I realized in the programming in the coding class was, one, there were no right or wrong answers. There were multiple ways to get to an answer that you had to visualize your data structures, the relationship between the data structures. It was an entirely different pedagogy. It was one of a challenge and, and exciting. And that's when I realized it was time for me to change my major because my passion was really in problem solving, not in memorization of formulas. So when I looked around the U.S. for a computer science degree, the one that I found, and I think it was really the only one, as an undergraduate degree in letters and science in pure computer science at UC Berkeley. So I transferred and uh, finished a major in four quarters, stayed on for my master's degree, and then spent another year or so in the PhD program. But obviously it changed my academic life and it changed my professional life. I think that's such a fascinating story. And I, I had a little bit of heart palpitation when you mentioned Blue Box. Scott, did those used to <laughs> give me <a> time? <laughs> especially, for those, especially for those of us that uh, whose mind uh, moves faster than your pen. Yeah, totally. Totally. I had that problem. Um, you don't and- have that problem with an Apple Pencil. It moves so no, fast. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We love those here too. So that brings me to uh, kind of a a huge question that I want to use to frame our conversation. Uh, You just wrote rewiring education. And I was curious as I was reading it, you mentioned it a little bit, but what do you see as the purpose of public education? And are we running our schools right now in a way that serves that purpose? Well, I mean, if you go back to the 1912 essay that Rockefeller funded. Yes, tell us about that too. Board of Education, I don't think most people realize the purpose was really to produce the workforce for the Industrial Revolution. And uh, it's, you know, I I thought it was so important in reading that essay where it it said they didn't want doctors and lawyers. They didn't want poets and artists. Uh, They just, you know, wanted people who would do the perfect thing. In other words, you know, a group of individuals that would do everything at the same time in the same manner. And I thought that was – I read that originally in, in Dr. Rose's book. Uh, Todd Rose is a good friend you know, who wrote uh, End of Average. So if you think about if, – if that's really the purpose is to meet the, the, the growing needs of, of, of our industries, boy, we are definitely out of sync because what we need people to do now, we need people who are creative. We need people who can solve major, major problems. And yet our school and the pedagogy is still based on that, you know, that sort of 1912 essay and formula that says, let's, let's, let's teach everybody at, at the same time, the same, the same information and expect everybody to jump through the hoops you know, similar, in a similar fashion. And we really are not recognizing the talents or the individuality of, of a student. 
Um, obviously, with four children and 16 grandkids, I've got my own Petri dish when it comes to, comes to education. And they're all different. Every one of them are different. And you can almost tell at age eight and nine where their passion and where their, where their gifts are. I, you know, having taught at Cal, having taken 10 years of my life and uh, run a uh, K-12 school and raising, you know, four kids and 16 grandkids, I've never met a student who wasn't uniquely gifted in, in some manner. And I, I really think that the, the number one job of a teacher really should be to help that student identify that talent and their passion and let, you know, it's called intrinsic motivation. I, I really believe that learning takes place place when we're intrinsically motivated. And unfortunately, our, our school system is based more on extrinsic motivation. You know, I mean, you got to do this because you got to go to college and you got to go to college because you got to get a job. And yet we don't even know what most of the jobs are going to be in five and 10 years. I, I love your answer to the question of what is the purpose of public education? And one of the things we try to include in our podcast are some actionable tips for teachers to do with their own students. And one of the things that you show in your book that a teacher does is that the teacher actually asks her students on the first day of class to write a one sentence summary of what they think the purpose of education is. So I think that is a really cool strategy that any teacher listening, um, try that with your students. What do they think the purpose of education is? And then how can you tie that to some intrinsic intrinsic motivator. Well, the, the irony there, of course, is that was the question that the uh, professor at Harvard was asking the, the graduate students in education. So here you had this captive audience, all who, quote, were going to be education experts. Well, they all came up with different answers. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to show you that when it comes to education, you know, many people have entirely different views. I actually like the word, I prefer the word learning first education. And I think Joe Ito at the Media Lab captured it best when he said, education is what people do to us. Learning is what we do for ourselves. And we need to be lifelong learners. And we need to learn to solve uh, problems, the immediate problems. That's why I like the challenge-based learning framework, because it, it takes the class from memorizing the periodic chart. We ask the question, is our water safe to drink? And you group the students in, in, in groups uh, because you want collaboration. And you hand them maybe colored beads that represent the different elements of water. And the kids have to discover what element they have. And they will discover there are carcinogenic elements in water. And then the conversation starts, well, who determines what level of arsenic, for instance, is safe in our water? So it, it just it, it produces an entirely different pedagogy where, one, it's relevant because we're drinking the water. Two, it allows the students to be the creators of the content rather than just consumers of of fixed content. It allows the kids to work in in groups. And we know from Vygorsky's work that that's how we learn. You know, collaboration is key. And yet when I went to school, it was called cheating because every project I ever had was a single person project. And finally, challenging. And that's what motivates the, the kids is the, is to take on a challenge. You only need to look at the whole, you know, gaming industry to realize how how val- valuable a challenge is to keeping a student's attention. And so is that how you characterize, because you do talk a lot about challenge-based learning in the book. Uh, is that how you characterize a challenge-based learning environment then uh, with authentic problems, students as creators collaborating and, and having a challenging project to work on? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the four elements that we talk about are relevant. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what was relevant when I was in fourth or fifth grade with seven pages of long division arithmetic to fill mm-hmm. out, that this is a generation of students who, because of the technology, have their own studio. They have their own stage. They have their own audience. So they're, they can be creators not just consumers of content, integrate collaboration into the problem solving because we work together better as, as teams of people. And finally, let's do something that's, that's challenging for the students. You know, the example that I used in the book was in the state of California, every fourth grader needs to take California history. Well, the only material in the book is fundamentally probably the least amount of material that the publishers could put to get the book adopted. And so most teachers assign a project and the project is to build a mission and, uh, you know, out of sugar cubes. And I, I always said, if, if the, if the project comes back in anything other than sugar cubes, the parents probably build it unless it was in Minecraft and you knew this dude built it. Um, <laughs> And and so instead of instead of that as a project, you know, I, I would issue a challenge that would tell the students, okay, you're William Randolph Hearst. And the kids will go, well, who's William Randolph Hearst? And you'd say, well, that's for you to discover. I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not distributing that content for you to memorize. And so they, as a team, go out and they discover that William Randolph Hearst was the uh, you know the owner of the San Francisco Examiner, I believe, and that he built a castle uh, by bringing in materials and workers and animals from all over the world. So all of a sudden the student is is outside of California and they'll they'll find that he entertained the Hollywood elite on the weekends and he built this long dining room table. And uh, so your challenge would be you're going to throw a dinner party for those individuals that had the biggest impact on California history. Who would you invite? Who would you invite? And what would the seating chart look like? Now, think about, you know, the exploration that the students would do, the conversations that the students would have. They would probably not invite the original governor of California, whose major goal was to annihilate the Indians. You know, would you invite, you know, Steve Jobs? And who would you sit Steve Jobs next to, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's the difference in, to me in learning and education. So we've, we've sort of identified then in like the problem. And in the book, you even say the main weakness of our current education system is a focus, focus on learning what to think rather than how to think. And I think that's really powerful. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your solution. When you say education needs to be rewired and what that really means and why it has to start with psychology and not technology, which is an interesting perspective. Perspective, I think, coming from the VP of Apple Education. <laughs> I think we identified eight or nine, uh, you know, different uh, challenges that we have to uh, rewire education. And we thought when we did our research, we said, you know, there's sort of two two approaches. One is throw everything out, just throw the whole education system out and start over. Okay. And the other one was sort of just short term patches. All right, we're going to limit this classroom to 20 students. And neither one seemed to work. Having the privilege to have grown up in Apple computer from the 54th employee to watching it go from basically a couple million dollars a year to $250 billion, the one constant in that experience was change. The world is changing. Technology is changing. People are changing, cultures are changing, and we need a, a system, you know, that can change with it. So that's why we use the term rewired because it's, you know, we're not going to rewire it once. It's going to be a constant rewiring as the forces outside 
the education world world change. Our second book is called Education Rewired, and it's going to be case studies, examples of schools that are very innovative, that are doing things and implementing programs for the students. So I think it'll help the parent. I wrote the first book just to start a conversation, to get parents to think a little bit differently about schools and their students. Now what we need to show them is what is actually taking place around the world, because there are a lot of innovative schools. You know, there's the old saying that the revolution has started, it's just not equally distributed. And so what we want to do is bring to the surface those schools that are doing incredible things. There's a school in Mexico uh, called Varmont that was started about 24 years ago by parents who wanted a better schooling environment for their daughter. And so they set out to basically implement challenge-based learning from age three all the way through ninth grade. And they've developed an incredible curriculum that's based around concept of me, my family, my community, my world. It's these kinds of innovations that I'd like to highlight in, in the second book so that parents can go, oh yeah, I get it. Well, how come I don't have a th- or a maker lab? So that's that's our goal with the second book. Well, I'm super excited about that. Your solution for education and making it work for everyone is to personalize the process. And to me, that's always felt like a new age millennial kind of thing to do. And what surprised me about your book was all of the quotes at the start of each chapter were from like super old school people. Like you have a quote from Einstein and Thomas Jefferson. And my question is, um, what can we learn about personalized education from the one room schoolhouse? And why is the narrative that this personalized education is this new tech thing, not yeah. just good teaching? Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because I formed a uh, nonprofit organization called Beyond School, where I hope to have a set of resources based around challenges available. I work a lot with schools in Africa, just sponsoring a school in Haiti. My goal is one, is to have a different curriculum, if you will, available. But two, I would like to to explore the concept of micro schools. And these would be schools of, say, 12 students led by mentors, different ages. So in a sense, it's kind of, um, you know, going back to that, oh, one room school. But where technology fits in, and the reason that technology doesn't even show up in the book until like chapter 13, I think in the same way that we have an IT infrastructure to be able to connect. I see a pedagogical infrastructure at some point in time. Probably the best example is the work that I did with eSparks. And what eSparks did was they vetted the education apps, tied them to standards, Common Core or others. When the teacher or the system, let's just simply say the the pedagogical IT system, looked at the results of the Northwest Educational Assessment Test and realized that Johnny doesn't understand quadratic equations, then the system basically delivers to Johnny an appropriate app that will allow him to overcome that deficiency. And in reality, what the student did was work one hour a day on that app. At the end of the week, they produced something, again, creators, that showed their mastery of that of that topic. And the test scores went from 29% to 68% in one semester. And the point is, when we can deliver to that individual student the need 
that they have at that time, that's where I think technology can come into place. Unfortunately, I believe that the majority of technology in schools is at the substitution level, you know, taking a page from Dr. Putin's era. We use a lot of technology, but we don't really change the pedagogy in the classroom. We don't really use the technology to allow us to do something that we couldn't do before without the technology. You know, unfortunately, probably 80% of the of the machine installations are simply, you know, getting the content off the internet rather than getting it out of a book and not really empowering the teacher or the student to be able mm-hmm. to do to do different things. Yeah, absolutely. Your book does a great job of really talking about tangible changes that we need to make to fix the school system. One of them being motivation that we've talked about. The other one is space. And you start that chapter off by talking about, uh, use a quote that if we wanted to design a learning space that worked the opposite of how the brain works, it would be a, and I quote, a friggin' classroom. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about changing learning space, not only physical spaces, but also digital spaces. And you reference Thornburg's Spaces for Learning in a campfire, a watering hole, a cave, and then you add a mountaintop. And I'd heard that analogy before, but I really liked how you described how all of those play together and what they might look like in a technology-rich environment. So would you mind talking about the campfire, the watering hole, the cave, and how they all work together? Yeah, well, well, first of all, you know, first it's Dr. Medina, who I've worked with in uh, projects in Brazil, and who's written a book, um, uh, Brain Rules. Right. Yeah. And, and that's where that quote you know, came from as far as, you know, if we were to design the worst environment for the way our brain works, it would be a classroom. In fact, you know, that's one of the challenges that we mentioned in the book is the fact that we are not integrating the academic research that has taken place into the pedagogy of our classrooms. So that, you know, that's that's one thing I think we need to better understand how the brain works, better understand the academic research has been done in collaboration, et cetera, et cetera. I like the uh, pre-mortal analogy of the cave, the watering hole, because if you take a, if you take a, if you take a look at a classroom, today. It's basically a campfire. I wish it was someone sharing their experiences, in other words, content in context, but primarily it's it's someone who's distributing readily available content. That's still going to be part, I think, of the learning environment, but I, I, I would like to see more experts coming into schools, sharing their experiences in the Galapagos or wherever. There's digital equivalents to this, you know, one to many. I added the, the mountain top or the mountain climb because that was the challenge. Uh, That was the piece that I felt that was missing. My good friend, Marco Torres. Marco, when he went into education to sort of uh, better understand the challenges, he took an old auto shop and converted into what he called the Inspiration Studio, and he taught social studies. And his students, the majority of them who did not speak English, were given a challenge to produce a documentary. And that documentary was not only going to be shared in the classroom, but it was going to be shared with the community. So for those students, that was a, that was a climb out of their environment and out into the community where they had to share their work. And so that's kind of what I meant by, by the mountaintop, the challenge. It's kind of the equivalent in the physical world would be the old outward bound school of Colorado where you learned how much physical torture you could you could withstand. This is you know, this is sort of the the intellectual equivalent that says, you know, I'm gonna challenge you to do something that you don't think you're even capable of doing. I think that to me that was the genius of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs surrounded himself with really, really bright people and then he challenged them to produce and to create something that didn't exist before. And probably that they didn't realize they were capable 
capable of doing. And if we could all do that for our students, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be incredible to convince uh, them the things that they don't think they're capable of? Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting because when I was in Washington uh, last week, before I met with Senator DeVos, I had addressed a number of interns and executives in uh, in Washington D.C. and had shared with them, you know, sort of my life story and the, the challenge from from the books. And one of DeVos's executives. The next morning before I met with, with Betsy came up to me and she said, you know, I changed the way the whole way I parent after listening to you last night. And I said, wow. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, my son came up with me with something to do with it had to be opened. And, and she goes, normally I would simply say, no, we're just not going to open that up at this time. And then she realized, she goes, I'm curbing his creativity, which is, you know, I've always said creativity is worth 100 IQ points. She goes, so I took the time. I stopped what I was doing and we explored area that he was interested in. So she said, you've changed the way I, I parent. If the book can do that, if the book can bring to the surface that every one of our children are uniquely gifted, that uh, we should help them and encourage them to explore their areas where they have passion, we will start to solve some of the problems. And, you know, and that, that really came from my daughter. My daughter uh, did not find school that easy. But when she was in her sophomore year at San Diego State, she took an art course. And her sorority sister said to her, you know, Tiffany, what are you doing in psychology? You've got this natural gift. So she called Parsons Fashion Design School. And they said, sure, come in next week with your portfolio, which she then produced. And she became, you know, a fashion designer. And she said, you know, Dad, she says, for 14 years, I pushed the education ball up the hill until I realized where I was gifted and where I was passionate, what I was passionate about. Just, I can now chase that ball down the hill. And that's my that's my goal for the students is that they can chase the, the learning ball down the hill for the rest of their lives. I saw that visual in the book and it's I that is what it feels like. And I, I don't know that that we've really I, I mean, we've got maker spaces and flex spaces and you know, we're we're trying more and more to to give students opportunities to discover those things. Like your daughter didn't figure it out to college. I didn't figure it out until I got into my professional life. A lot of us are career changers and we don't even know what we don't know. What how are what are some ways that we can start to expose students to this uh while they're in our K twelve classrooms so that they don't have to go through, you know, what what your daughter and a lot of us went through in, in switching so many you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a challenge, you know. I mean my old boss Mike Markle at, at Apple used to refer to a problem of the of the scope and size as as changing education as a as a twenty thousand pound marshmallow. How do you move it? You know, because if you push in it, <laughs> it just pushes out. So the Sounds answer, like I, the answer, I guess, is one bite at a time, right? So yeah. you know, I'm hoping that rewiring education will bring on the first bites of that of that twenty thousand pound marshmallow. But I think you know the the approach that I'm going to take, hopefully, uh, as I go forward, is is trying to create a curriculum that's entirely challenge based and that maybe doesn't what I would say, attack a well-built fortress, but starts either in preschools or in after-school programs where the impedance isn't as great and start to, to show people alternatives. And as they see those alternatives and they see the success of those alternatives sort of at the fringes of education, preschool, after-school type programs, the question will be, well, if that works, why why can't we bring it into the mainstream? So I think that's kind of my goal going forward is to, is to work with people like Marco Torres and others and create a curriculum that's challenge-based. 
learning based. What about, is that like, is that kind of to what you're talking about when you, I mean, I, I know micro schools are like the idea of, you know, small 12 students, they get a mentor, things like this. Is that another kind of like, um, I, I don't know, different way to look at it that might start to infiltrate the, the well built yeah. fortress? I think that's what we're looking for in, in, in the classroom is that flexibility to recognize an individual's talent and allow that individual to, to grow in that area. One of the examples I believe in the, we, in the book was we mentioned Dr. Jody Dahlheimer, right, in Koppel. The students building their own curriculum around anatomy. And the young, young lady that on the project that was given the assignment to do the illustrations was not considered to be one of the better students. But today she's a medical illustrator because it was in that project, in that challenge-based project, that she discovered where her talents were. And, you know, when I thought about it, I go, what class did I take in high school that would have even given me any indication that I had a talent for illustration? So I think that's the value of, of, of a challenge-based learning framework in a, a kids, students working to collaboratively. Hmm. Um, so I want to, I'd love to ask you, it, you said the way we design our classrooms today will ultimately define our societies tomorrow. And I'm curious, there's a, a, a series of slides on your uh, website where you talk about like the things that, that we need to be stepping up our game in, like things like intelligence assistance, internet of things, 3D printing, things like that. So like, what are we, what do we need to be preparing our students well for right now that we're kind of falling? Where do we need to step up our game? Well, I think to me the the first place is 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 creativity. We need to bring creativity back into the primeost uh, area. You know, that's why I mentioned earlier. I used I used the term the banner at Apple in the early days that creativity is worth 100, 100 IQ points. And I think I tell the story in the book as well about the Harvard professor when asked by the ADEs, you know, what should I look for in my eighth grade science students such that they would be scientists like yourself. And he said, don't look for intelligence, look for creativity. All the top scientists I know are creative by nature. So I think I think that's the number one. But I have a slide that shows the height of creativity is at five years old and the lowest creativity is an adult. And it just goes down over time. And so I think our education system, in a sense, sort of layers concrete on our creativity. We're not rewarded for drawing outside the lines. We're rewarded for, for staying inside the lines. One of my favorite stories is when Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. I think every major physics department in the country was teaching that it was physically impossible to break the sound barrier. And when asked how he did it, he simply said, look, I'm just a farm boy. I just went out and did it. You know, <laughs> If we're going to be successful as a country, we're going to have to be innovative. We're going to have to be creative. And that should be a, a key component in our learning environment. That's why, you know, what I say, relevant, creative, collaborative, and challenging creativity is, is key. And I see that in the lower grades. You know, you'll walk into a first grade classroom or a second grade classroom, and there'll be a supermarket in the back of the classroom, and the kids will learn all about math and, you know, with, with relevant ex examples in the classroom. But by the time you get to sixth and seventh grade, it is boring. Absolutely. And we'll put a graphic on our site here about student engagement across the years, and it really is a direct plummet from elementary school through high school. So I think that yeah, that's great... one of my it's one of my slides that I use, and it, what's interesting is there's a little bit of a bump in your senior year, and I chalk that up to okay, 
I got to get back to engagement if I'm, if I'm going to get my degree. Again, totally. but, it, but it's an intrinsic requirement rather than an intrinsic one. Yeah, 100%. Well, we never, again, are probably going to have the opportunity to talk about Apple employee number 54, badge 54. So we have to end on a couple Apple Steve Jobs questions, if you will allow it. So one of the cool stories in this book is just chocked full of cool Apple stories. If you're Apple fans like myself, you'll want to pick it up. But I loved the story and hadn't really put it together about why the iPad was released without a manual. Can you tell me about that? Well, I think it's probably part of the, of, of the Apple culture. If there, if there was a manual, then it would be, you know, too hard to use. So that's, uh, you know, that's, it was typical of Steve, right? I mean, in my early days, we're not going to put a fan in a computer. It's just one of those challenges that, that Steve would set out there. Uh, I remember a time when he came back from a business trip and he had sat next to Freddie Smith. He came into the executive team. And that time when we produced a computer, it went to a distribution center. And he came back and said, look, we're going to do away with all the distribution centers. We're going to go directly from the end of the manufacturing line directly to the customer, just like FedEx. So, you know, that I think that that just rep, you know, Steve was always looking for, well, one, he was always focused on the user, on empowering the user. I mean, that, that was his whole vision of technology from the very beginning. The, the mental bicycle, the amplifier for our intellect, not to take us where we've already been, but to allow us to explore, to innovate, to create. And so that's just one of those uh, challenges that was set out there, like there'll be no fan or, you know, we're going to do away with floppy disks. You, I mean, you can, you can go back through Apple's history and see these edicts, if you will, these challenges throughout throughout the years. And that happened to be the one for the iPad. Yeah, I love it. I think in the book, you, you kind of tie it in a little bit to challenge-based learning and how we all prefer to learn through a challenge than reading a manual. And I thought, I remember getting my first iPad and then opening it and being shocked that there wasn't one in there. And I picked it up because it, it totally was a challenge and that was fantastic. So the last question we'd love to ask is about Steve Jobs. Uh, really cool picture we'll put on the site with you and Steve on a walk. I just can't even imagine what that must have been like. Um, but one of the things you really communicate that I think teachers should communicate to their students is about Steve's opinion of failure and Apple's opinion of failure and learning from it and celebrating it. Yeah, that's one of the missing ingredients in, in the pedagogy is we don't allow failure. I mean, just look at Thomas Edison, right? How many times did he, did he fail? And, you know, probably the example that I use from a personal perspective is when my son Jordan, my youngest son in 2001, came home and said, Dad, I need to do a science project. And I said, yes, I know you're in biology. You need to learn about, you know, scientific method. What are you interested in? He says, well, I've been reading about these frogs, these deformed frogs that we've been finding with multiple legs. And I said, well, you know, he goes, I'd like to know what the cause of that is. And I said, well, you know, your teacher's not going to know the answer to that. And there's probably not a book in the library that will, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to go to the internet. And I said, okay, well, come back and share with me what you find. And he comes back and he goes, there's three premises. One is uh, ozone layer depletion and ultraviolet light zapping the frog. The second is pesticides in agriculture land washing down into a pond and deforming the frogs. And the third was that this professor in a junior college in upstate New York wrote a small paper saying that he found a parasite in one of these deformed frogs. And I said, well, what are you going to, what are you interested in? He says, well, I want to, I want to get a hold of that parasite so I can extract the DNA and see how it compares with 
the known protein and limb generation. You know, and I caught myself before I said, well, you can't do that because I don't know anything about it. But I thought, well, this is what science really is. He may fail, but that's what science is. So, you know, if we really, if we really want to teach him about science, we need to allow for failure. So I said, go for it. He emailed the professor in upstate New York. The guy was flabbergasted and the 10th grader had even read his paper, met with him, showed it basically in, in Oregon. The um, parasites were hosted in snails in, in a pond. They packed them up in dry ice. He flew back to uh, Cooperstown, upstate New York. At midnight, the parasites came out of the snails. They captured everything on an electron microscope in the professor's lab. The professor showed him how to extract the DNA, how to submit the DNA for amplification, how to, uh, there was a website at the time where you could submit a sequence and it would tell you whether it was patented, whether it was written up in the literature, what it was homologous to. He submitted it. He came back and said, the DNA of your parasite is 98% homologous to the known protein in limb generation. He wrote up his science paper that said, this is equivalent of a terrorist going in the cockpit of an airplane, removing the pilot and taking it in a new direction. Wins the science Wins the science fair at Bellarmine College Preparatory. Uh, gets a call from Dr. Doug Brutlog from Stanford University saying, how would you like to spend your summer uh, continuing your research? And he goes, no, thanks, but I play basketball in the summer. But, <laughs> the, but the point is, the point is that's learning. See, there was, there, was a, there was an opportunity for failure there. Big opportunity for failure there. We don't allow failure in the classroom. So talk, that's another, yeah. you know, talk about curiosity, talk about, you know, failure. Talk about challenges. Talk about, about this is a generation of, of students who, you know, it's like Alan Kay said, technology is only technology to those born before the, before the technology. Our teachers and our superintendents still think of technology as a, as a tool. They look at technology as an environment. It's an environment for exploration, an environment uh, to solve real problems. And, that, and that's yeah. where I think that's where I think our school should be. We should be preparing students to think outside the box, to be creative, to be innovative, not to be afraid of, of failure. And when I think about Apple, we don't hire grades and diplomas and certifications. We hire experiences. We hire people that can solve a problem. Hundred percent. That's that's great. And since your your son did that research, they actually have discovered that the extra leg on the frog was from sleeping with Android phones under their pillow. Yeah. So oh just for the reason, yeah, yeah Samsung's yeah. explode, and then yeah. I, I will I will have to tell him to look that one up. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, we cannot thank you enough. You are one of my heroes, and uh, it was just fantastic speaking with you. All right, let's close up shop. Becky, what did you learn? Well, I've been really interested in how his ideas for modern schooling go back to the earliest days of constructivism. His book is really full of quotes from Dewey and Einstein, and that really got my wheels turning. One of them uh, is the quote from Dewey, we only think when confronted with a problem. And it really has me thinking about how we help students find and confront meaningful, relevant, and creative problems. How about you, Ben? Totally. Yeah, I think I loved all those old school shoutbacks too, but then I really liked the mantra of Apple early on that IQ is one thing, but that creativity is worth 100 IQ points. And thinking about that phrase juxtaposed with the graph that we see of student engagement dropping from kindergarten till 12th grade, um, just thinking that creativity is a skill that companies like Apple want, but it's also the ultimate carrot that we can hold out in front of students to incentivize engagement. And so 
creativity to me just feels like a win-win. It helps your kids get good at what they need to be successful in life, and it helps them like your content. And so for our tangible tips today, we're going to talk about cool ways that we've seen teachers utilize creativity to get students deeply engaged. And my first example comes from an amazing marigold of a teacher named Lisa Mercier, and she teaches first and second grade literacy. And in her first grade, they just read this adorable little book called I Wanna Iguana. And it's all about this kid who's arguing back and forth with his mom about buying him an iguana. And she gives a couple of reasons why he shouldn't have an iguana. And he responds back with reasons why he should have an iguana. And the story on its own is really engaging, but what Lisa allows her students to do afterwards is do like a design challenge where they empathize with the mom and they figure out what is the mom's biggest hurdle to letting that kid get an iguana. And then they prototype a solution that would allow that problem to go away. And then they pitch that solution to fifth grade kids who pretend to be the parents and say if it would work or not. And so just thinking about the creative options there that kids show their understanding of the story, that they're identifying problems, not just solving them. Super awesome and uh, really cool story. Thanks for doing awesome stuff, Lisa. How about you, Becky? That's really cool. I like that design challenge a lot. And I love using other students in different classes as authentic audiences to give, you know, real feedback to students. That's really cool. Um, well, for me, so since we spent this hour talking with the Apple legend John Couch, I feel like it's an appropriate time to mention uh, some of Apple's new materials that are free. They're called, uh, they're free in iBooks and they're called Everyone Can Create. And there's a series of books, a teacher guide, and then a number of books that are student facing. Uh, and there are five completely free books for teachers and students that have dozens of ways for teachers to try to allow for students to creatively show what they know and understand. They're beautifully designed, and so they're really nice to look at, as well as being really full of potent examples on how to infuse creativity into your lessons. So you can even follow the hashtag Everyone Can Create to see more examples from real classrooms, uh, as well as editable rubrics for these projects. But I'll highlight a few of my favorites that I, I've seen just as kind of leafing through these Um they come from things like photography and music and drawing and how to embed those in your in your in instruction more. And one idea is to create a photo collage that shows the relationship between plants and animals in a, in a local ecosystem. And these kinds of things are so easy now with technology. Like I said, go on the hashtag everyone can create and you'll see what kinds of programs and software people are using. Um, but it's mostly just like the camera and markup in iPads or, you know, with any devices that students bring to school or using clips, which which is also a free app. Isn't it, Ben? Is Clips free? Yep. Yep, it is. Okay, cool. Or another one is tell the restore, the story of a recyclable object in a series of photos. So you can take photos that show like multiple phases of the life cycle of something that's recyclable and then how it moves from stage to stage. And that's a really cool way. And you can make a, like a memory movie with the photos that then shows that object's entire life cycle, which would be a really cool way to dive into what recycling is. Um Another one is like a social media post where you can describe the journey of a character in a novel by maybe taking 10 photographs of places that represent the character's travels or even, you know, the people, the character's relationship with other people. And then you can ask followers on social media to leave comments about that mood. Or even if you're in a learning management system like Schoology, you could do it in that kind of a place. Uh, and then the last one 
that I saw that I thought was really cool was making an infographic for like spoken languages around the globe. You could, and think about it, you could do this in language class, you could do it in math class, you could do it in art class. Uh, it fits in so many different subjects. But if you have students research uh, what spoken languages are in a different country or across the globe, and you could have them put it in the form of an infographic, you could put like population numbers, which countries that language is spoken in, number of people speak that language, how long it's been around for, things like that. Um, provide information on which languages are easier to learn and why they think that is. I mean, think about how many different content areas you could put that in. And those are just examples that I saw while I was kind of browsing through these books. I think that when the magic that happens is that when students see some of these things and then start those projects and then take it to a whole nother level, that's when we really see the student magic and creativity come into this. So definitely check those out. They're all free online. Yeah. And I, I think of you, Becky, with your sketch notes. And maybe even if it was a content you weren't super interested in, if you knew at the end of it, you got to use your artistic talents to make a cool infographic, you'd probably be way more bought into that subject, you know? Yeah. And think too about how assessment can play into it. I mean, any of those things that I just mentioned can be used as a formative assessment or as a student portfolio where students can see their growth from one project to the next uh, and really get students involved in the assessment of their own understanding and their own learning. I I think this is all good for that too. Easy there, Turbo. We can't, we got to go slow. Okay. (laughs) Let's go slower. I love it. Well, please... Uh, thank you so much for listening. Please share out any cool creative projects your students are doing using the hashtag make some brainwaves and leave us feedback anytime at tinyurl.com/brainwavesfeedback. As always, have a great generic time of day. <laughs>